uh, Jeremiah after the last uh, nine weeks or so. And so before we begin, how about I pray? Father in heaven, we thank you that for the last nine weeks or so we've been able to go through your word in the book of Jeremiah. And as we've sat under uh, messages that are hard to hear from your word, um, even as we glimpse uh, the hope uh, that we have, Father, we just pray that uh, today we can all bring it together and just remember what we've learned through the last few weeks and be able to change our lives as a result. Uh, so please be at work today, we pray. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, many years ago, um, when I was at uni, I was uh, driving, I was giving a lift to some of my friends. And at the time, I just bought a manual car and I was learning to drive manual. And so I had a lot of fun, you know, changing up and down the gears just for the fun of it, giving the car a bit of a rev. And so one of my more annoying friends, uh, annoying passengers at the back seat, told me off as I, as I was driving. He said, dude, you're wasting petrol and you're driving too fast. But then I said, we're in a 60 zone. I'm driving 60. What's wrong? Uh, driving you is a waste of petrol, I, I, I said. I thought I was very clever when I said that. But just as I said that, we went over a crest and we saw not only a sign saying that it was actually a 50 zone, not a 60 zone. Uh, it is, it is on. Uh, okay, let me turn it off and on again. Nope. <laughs> it's okay, it's just a picture of a 50 zone. <laughs> Uh, not only did I see that the speed sign was uh, 50 and not 60 as I thought, but right next to the 50 sign was a cop car with a speed gun pointing right at me. And being very pleased with himself, my friend said, I told you so. And I could still remember how much I loved hearing those words. I told you so. Now, thankfully, even though the cops didn't book me because maybe I hadn't been speeding enough, uh, I still felt that rush of blood to my head. My face was red both with embarrassment and anger at the same time. I hated that my friend was right and he was rubbing it in saying, I told you so. He was taking so much pleasure out of it. And as we come to the final chapter of Jeremiah, it kind of looks like God is saying, I told you so to his people, right? Because looking back at the last nine weeks or so, what have we heard so far? In our first chapter, we have this vividly clear picture of who Jeremiah is, right? He is God's prophet set apart from before his birth to warn of the coming judgment. Right at the beginning, we have that. And why? Well, we see week after week in our series, there's just been this wholesale rejection of God, right? The kings have rejected God's word. The priests, the Levites, the prophets, those dedicated to serve God have rejected God's word and everyone else has as well. Every person on the street, they're worshipping false gods, they're doing everything that God hates. And we've seen in our series that instead of trusting in the rock-solid security of the Lord, God's people have put their trust in alliances with the nations, trusting in their religious works, their buildings, their sacrifices, and all these things in and of themselves that couldn't save them. And so throughout our series, we've seen God continuously painting the picture of judgment to come, hoping, pleading with them 
that listen to my words so that you can turn back to me so that I can forgive you, I can bless you once again. But of course, for 50-odd chapters, these warnings, these pleas, they fall on deaf ears. And so now we come to the end, the final book of Jeremiah. How does this book end? Well, you might have already noticed that during the Bible reading, the words are a bit different to the rest of the book of Jeremiah, right? In the previous chapters, we've seen God pour out his emotion as he pleads with his people, as he warns people with, with harsh judgment. You can, you can feel Jeremiah's emotion and, and God's emotion as, as we read these pictures. But in this chapter that Grace read for us, we just get a bunch of facts, right? It's just a bunch of cold, hard facts. And so with these facts, we get to see how trustworthy God's word actually is. Let's see if God's warning about Judah's destruction was true or if it's just one big bluff. And so the first thing we read about in this chapter is the destruction of Judah's sovereignty. Right? Judah's sovereignty, the governing rule of God's people. Here come the facts. Right? Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years. We even get some facts about why the Babylonians came from a human perspective. Uh, verse 3, because Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Skipping down to verse 4, we get some more facts. In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. They encamped outside the city and built siege works all around it. And then after recounting all the terrible effects of the siege and the fall of the city, which we'll, we'll get to later, we get the facts about the king's attempted escape. That is, the king and his army, they, they left the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden, through, though the Babylonians were surrounding the whole city. And as we've seen a couple of weeks ago in another, in another sermon, this king, Zedekiah, he was captured. His family executed before his very eyes. And then his eyes were gouged out. And he himself was taken to Babylon where he died in prison. And so how do all these facts, historical facts, hold up against God's warning? Well, it happens exactly as God said it would, of course, right? We saw that a couple of weeks ago already. Zedekiah didn't obey God. And so now the kingship is removed. His sovereignty is destroyed. But we also see the destruction of the people of Judah here as well, right? The destruction of the people of God. And again, we have this, the facts. As the Babylonian, Babylonian army is encamped outside, right, from the 10th month of the ninth year of Zedekiah till the 4th month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, we have 18 months of siege warfare. I'm not sure if you know what siege warfare is, but in siege warfare, an entire army sort of blockades the city. They form a massive ring around the city as they are helpless inside the walls, cut off from all outside contact, no access to the fields of farming, no access to trade routes to, to bring in supplies. Now, we've already seen the panic that can take place even when it was announced that we had two weeks of lockdown, right? Here in Brisbane, right? As you see lines of people in the shops and worrying about the, the groceries for the next two weeks. Can you imagine 18 months of that? Except... This sort of lockdown isn't just your local supermarket running out of toilet paper, but all of the essential goods. There's no meat, 
no eggs, no bread, maybe for us no rice as well. And so by the end of that period, right, 18 months of that, there was no more food left at all in the city. All the food that was left in the storehouses to keep them safe, even after strict rationing, I'm sure, it's all gone. Now think about what that means. People would have been dying of starvation. And what comes along with poor health of starvation, right? As people's bodies start getting weaker, disease starts to get a, a hold of them. So we get widespread sickness as well. Until finally, when the population is utterly exhausted, dying of starvation, weak with disease, that's when the Babylonians break through. That's when they break down the city walls and come charging in with their swords. It's so bad that even the army fled. They don't even try to put up a fight, leaving all of God's people at the hands of the enemy attackers. Now, sadly, recent events have uh, given us a glimpse into the horrors of war, uh, in particular the horrors of what it looks like to be captured and occupied by an enemy force, right? And so as we read on the news that those, those shocking stories of rape, pillage, and torture, as we see more and more evidence of these execution-style murders on a large scale in the occupied cities of Ukraine, as much as that has stirred up outrage throughout the whole world, the truth is, falling under an occupying force here in the times of Jeremiah, well, that would have actually been far worse, far more brutal, even more violent and more shocking, if you can even imagine that, right? Soldiers back then wouldn't even try to cover up what they did, because that's just how you treated your enemies. Now, I don't want to in any way minimize the suffering of those in Ukraine and, of course, all the other places where there's wars are going on, right? What they're going through, it's, it's, it's terrible. We should grieve with them. We, we should support them. We should pray and, uh, and help them financially. But the reality is what God's people faced back then, it would have been far worse. And so, again, we ask ourselves, did God warn us about this throughout the chapters of Jeremiah? Now, as I was preparing this sermon series, I, I, I did something a little bit unusual to what I normally did, and that is the first thing I did was to sit down and read through the whole book, and not just read through the whole book, but to actively take notes on each chapter. I thought that would be a really good way for me to get a feel for the whole book. And as I was going through the book, summarizing each chapter, I just kept noticing a particular phrase that kept coming up over and over again. And one of those phrases that I saw was, was this one. It was a warning of dying by sword, famine, and plague if people did not repent. And I, I noticed after a while, I was typing out this phrase so many times that I just abbreviated it to SFP because I was just getting sick of typing it over and over again. I saw it so much, in fact, that I was tempted to feel this sort of detachment as I typed SFP for the hundredth time in my chapter summaries. Oh, there it is again but I really shouldn't be doing that, right? Sword, famine, and plague. If we stop and realize how horrible it would be to be on the receiving end of that, slow, long, drawn-out suffering, starvation, and if you survive that, dying by the sword in the most agonizing of deaths, not just for yourself, but for your loved ones as well, seeing your loved ones suffer 
as the food supplies dwindle. And even if you are lucky enough to survive the longest, then you just witness your whole family dying a horrible death. Sword, famine, and plague. This phrase occurs so many times because God wants his people to feel, to know the reality of the horror that awaits them if they don't turn back. But of course they didn't. And so sword, famine, and plague is what they finally get here in chapter 52. But not just the destruction of the people, but now we get the destruction of the city itself, right? And of course, the whole city is totally destroyed from the most important buildings, all the great buildings, the the royal palace, even the temple, down to the small buildings, even people's homes, all burned down. The walls that kept Jerusalem secure completely broken down. So even if you survive this initial attack, well, you'd have no hope of surviving another attack. There's nothing stopping another army sweeping through and plundering the village. And so again, as we flip back, what are the warnings that we get from God that this would happen? In chapter 19, God warns them, if you keep persisting in worshipping to your false gods on your rooftops, if you keep burning your children in the fire, sacrificing them to Baal, then all these buildings, all these houses on which you are doing all these detestable things on, well, I will destroy them all. I will wipe them all out, reduce them to rubble. Again, people didn't listen to God's warning and it happened. But perhaps most shocking of all is the destruction of God's temple. And along with that, the destruction of Judah's worship of God, right? God's house was burned to the ground by this Babylonian commander. That's really hard to pronounce. I won't even try it. But not before all the treasures are are, are once and for all plundered and carted off to Babylon. And as you look at all the stuff that they they took, uh, pots, shovels, wick trimmers, the list goes on. It's like, what did they not take? Articles made from gold, silver, bronze, anything of value. Now let's for a moment just imagine that you come home, you walk through your house and you realize that you're broken into. And in your panic, as you start taking note of what, what's been stolen, all the stuff of value has been taken, the cash, your wallet, your laptop, maybe your, your TV and so on. But then you realize that they took your most intimate personal belongings, which you treasured not just because of their material value. Maybe they stole your wedding ring. And then you see your favorite photos your baby photos, childhood memories, wedding photos, vandalized, ripped up, or burned. You'd be horrified, right? You'd be, you feel like you're completely violated. Because I think it's the same emotion that's meant to be driven home here. Yes, these articles of bronze, silver, and gold, gold they have great value, but, but more than that, they represented something priceless. These tools and utensils represent the unique privilege that God's people had that God would be dwelling among them. That with the finest silverware, or goldenware in this case, utensils carefully described by God and made exactly to his specifications, they announce to the world that God is pleased to dwell with us. God is pleased to be served by us with the finest materials and utensils so that we can be his special people. 
Those are the facts. And again, we look back a few chapters. Chapter 27, as the false prophets came, giving the people false hope, they say, no, you'll be right. God will protect his temple. You can keep doing what you're doing. Keep sinning. Keep worshiping the temple of the gods. God will bring back all the articles that actually were taken from the very first few exiles that happened. Uh, remember, like uh, Babylonians came a few times over the course of these decades, and each time they looted the temple a little bit, a little bit. But this is what God says instead. God warns that not only will those articles not come back from foreign land, but he will in fact allow all the remaining tools to be taken away as well, along with the destruction of his temple. And so with all that, this is what God is saying. I'm going to allow these foreigners to violate my temple, to plunder the tools. I'm going to let them destroy this place where I once dwelt with you in this city. Because God is saying, I don't care for it anymore. Your service means nothing to me. These fancy tools and decorations are meaningless to me if you don't cherish life with me as your God. This whole temple, this whole meeting place between me and you, away with it, because I can't stand to meet with you anymore. And so there we have it, the final chapter of Jeremiah. Just as God had warned repeatedly, we have the total destruction of the sovereignty of Judah, the destruction of the people, the destruction of the city, even the destruction of their worship. In this final chapter, all the warnings finally come to pass. And so at this point, it's, it's natural for me to repeat and, and, and a challenge that I made uh, to us a couple of weeks back. And that is, what we have before us in this chapter is God's way of giving us concrete evidence that his warnings, his words always come true. God's words, words aren't just sort of some wise saying that you can take it or leave it. You pay attention if you want to, if you have time. No, God's warnings are a matter of life and death. Life and death for us particularly on a spiritual level, on an eternal scale. So whether that be for ourselves as we might not take God's word seriously when it comes to following Jesus or perhaps living a life that is consistent with having Jesus as our king. Well, this passage today stops us in our tracks to make us think about whether we really believe that God's words, God's laws, God's warnings, are they really for real? Or is it just some nice sayings that that are at the back of our minds, you know, there when we need it? But the good news is, there's more to this chapter, isn't there? Because our passage is so much more than God simply having the last word saying, I told you so, and then leaving the chat. That's not what God's doing here. But rather, even in the passages that we've covered so far, we see that God is not finished with his people. And we actually have a couple of reasons to hold out hope. And the first one of these reasons actually doesn't really look like something that you'd find hope in. And that is, as we read of the people forced to leave Jerusalem, over 4,600 exiled in total, that on the face of it sounds like a terrible judgment from God, right? And it kind of is in part. But if we've been paying attention to what God has been saying in our series so far, 
This is actually a big reason to have hope. Because what did God say about those who would go off into exile? Well, in chapter 24, God promises that he will watch over the exiles as they are in a foreign land, as they are under the thumb of the Babylonians. God will watch over them for their good this time, not to judge them. God promises that one day he will bring them back into the homeland where they will flourish. God promises to give them a heart to truly know him so they can truly worship God. And we get that promise again in chapter 29. But then again in chapter 32, he speaks of those scattered among the nations that he will gather them from all over the different countries and bring them back. Again, God promises to be their God, to give them a new heart, and God promises to make a new everlasting covenant with them. And so while our natural instinct is is to perhaps take pity on these 4,600 people who have been forcefully taken away from their homes, which to be sure would have been absolutely devastating for them. But if we step back, remind ourselves of God's promises, then these 4,500 exiles become this tiny, insignificant seed from which God's purposes for the whole world will one day blossom and come to fruition. And just to make this absolutely clear, we come to this final paragraph of the last chapter of Jeremiah. We get this really strange story about one of the kings that God wasn't pleased with, right? King Jehoiachin. After being imprisoned in Babylon, all of a sudden, 37 years into exile, this, a new king pops up and decides to release Jehoiachin from prison. He gives him a seat at the table of Babylon. Now that in itself isn't that uncommon because that's what those kings liked to do back then, right? As they conquered all these nations in the area, they liked to keep them prisoner and then cut them out and dine with them at his uh, kingly table as a sign of his power. Look at what I've done. Look at all these kings that I've, I've overcome. But the thing is here, Jehoiachin is singled out. He's given a higher seat of honour than all the other kings. He's given the special privilege of regularly eating at the king's table, not just on once-off occasions when, when the king wants to show off. He's even given a regular allowance until his death, presumably living, living to a ripe old age, uh, presumably spending the rest of his life in comfort and luxury, even if it was under another king. And so on the face of it, it's such a strange ending to this book, right? To this chapter speaking of the demise of Judah. Why, why does Jeremiah end this way? Well, again, let's keep reminding ourselves of God's promise through Jeremiah. That chapter 23, God speaks of a future king coming from the line of David, one who would rule in righteousness, one who will save Israel, one called Lord our Righteousness. Again, this is repeated in chapter 33, in case we missed it. And so, as we compare the facts of what happens here, the final chapter of Jeremiah, with the promises of God, seeing that there's so much grace shown to the last surviving king of David's line, and not just surviving, but thriving in comfort, this is not a mere coincidence, right? Of course not. How do we know this? Well, how does the very start of the New Testament start, right? 
Starting from the New Testament, the very first thing you read is a family tree. Starting with Abraham, the first to receive the promises of God to bless the world, we see generation after generation becoming a nation, receiving a land. And in the land, we get this unbroken line of Davidic kings, starting with David all the way up to Jeconiah. Jeconiah was just another name for Jehoiachin in verse 11. And this is actually the point that we're up to in Jeremiah 52. Right? The exile ends with Jehoiachin. But the thing is, it doesn't end there, because in verse 12, we get these words, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, was the father of Shealtiel. The line of David continues right up until, of course, verse 16. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There is a direct line from King Jehoiachin who deserved to be punished but was shown grace. The one who ultimately leads to the Messiah, King Jesus. And he, King Jesus, is the one who ultimately restores everything that was lost in the chapter 52 of Jeremiah. Because Jesus is God's perfect king. In him, his kingship, the kingship of God's people is restored, fulfilled as the only true righteous one coming from God, ruling in perfect obedience to God the Father. In Jesus, God's people are redeemed. As Jesus comes to seek out the lost sheep of Israel for himself, as Jesus cleanses, prepares for himself a holy people before God by the washing of his blood on the cross. In Christ, the promise of a new city, new Jerusalem, a perfect city, restored for eternity where there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more sin. And in Christ, that shadow of what that temple stood for is fulfilled. Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to dwell among his people face to face. The promise that one day we too will dwell face to face with our God forever. True life under our Creator, under our Heavenly Father. No, this isn't just some I told you so by God and that's it. God is saying, yes, I did warn you about all this. Yes, it has come true. My people, my city, my king, my temple, all these things I will take away because you have not listened to me. But even now, even now, at the lowest point of your history, Israel, God says, you can count on me, you can still count on me to fulfill my promises to you and to your forefathers. Even now, as you are exiled, cast far off from your home, looking like there's no hope, no temple, trust me, keep trusting me, and I will restore all that you've lost beyond your wildest imagination. And so as we close off our series on Jeremiah, As we've heard warning after warning every week, let's not only hear God's warning to take his word seriously. I mean, we need to do that for sure. But let's also hear God's promises to us and let us trust in him. Because no matter where you're at, no matter how bleak the situation might look, it's not too late to trust in God. Where are you with God at this moment? Maybe some of us have slipped into complacency in our walk with God. Maybe you've stopped 
prioritizing taking God's word seriously. Maybe there's some sort of stubborn sin in your life that you're too ashamed to come to God for forgiveness again. And you're ready to throw in this towel because you're just too ashamed of yourself. Well, can I please urge you to realize that no matter where you're at, it's never too late to turn back to God once again and trust in His promises. Know that God won't turn His back on you no matter how much you think you've messed up, no matter how bad the situation looks like from your perspective. Ask Him for strength to live for Him. Ask Him to forgive you, and He will. Are you someone who just feels like life has just kept dealing blow after blow to you? Maybe you're exhausted physically, mentally, you're burnt out, maybe even to the point of becoming cynical about church, maybe cynical about following Jesus, or cynical about life. Well, can you hang in there? Cling on to the one whose words are the only words that can be fully depended on, whose words are the only words that will remain standing in the end, and whose words will bring life, eternal life, at the end. Even when you don't feel like it, will you keep turning to our Lord who has in store for you something that far outweighs all the troubles that we face in this world? But for some of us, we might not be in a dark place right now. We might be sitting here feeling quite comfortable, actually. And even so, we need to be people who will take in Jeremiah's warnings and encouragement even now even when we're living in comfort, free from heavy suffering, so that when the time does come, we have a solid foundation of hearing and trusting in God's word to support us when we need God's voice the most. We need to prepare ourselves as a church to trust in the Lord's plan, His words, His promises, for a time when we will be tempted to feel that trusting in God is the last thing we want to do. And so let's keep reminding ourselves that there is nothing that God can take away in this life that he won't give back tenfold on the last day in Christ. That in Christ, all that we ever need, long for, it will all be satisfied because of seeing Jesus face to face, our perfect King, who redeems us as God's holy people, dwelling in God's city, so that we can worship God face to face forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that your final word to your people isn't simply, I told you so. That receiving what they deserved is not the final word, the final chapter of your holy book. But that we get this wonderful joy of reading your promises, continuing despite how sinful your people are. And we thank you that that continues today, even in our sin, that you are still holding out hope for us. But more importantly, we thank you that in Christ, you are the one who ultimately wins that and secures that for us. So Lord, Father, help us to be people who keep trusting in Jesus, who keep turning to Jesus as our King, as our Saviour. And Father, will you guide us and protect us to the last day where we will see you face to face and enjoying you forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.